Oh, hello, Wisecrack. Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, the Wisecrack movie podcast. I am Michael, and today I am joined by Austin and Tommy. Thank you. Yeah, so great to have everyone here. Um, So this is a a fun one because we are talking about a movie that was voted on on a Patreon poll. So if you participated in that, we love you. If you didn't, jump in next time. So we're talking about the Coen Brothers 2009 film, A Serious Man, with one caveat. Technically, that didn't win the poll. No way. Yes, we, we, we got excited. We saw the poll early. Polls were not closed. It's like when they call an election and then someone gets on the news and they're like, actually, Gail. Um, but so the real winner was 1917, which we will be talking about next week. So we're doing them just in a different order. Um, so before we get into it, what are everyone's first impressions on recently viewing or reviewing A Serious Man? Tommy, jump in there. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, for myself, uh, I guess when I first saw this movie, I didn't really quite know what I was getting into. Uh, usually the Coens are sort of in two different modes, typically. There's like drama Coens, the Fargo's mo- mode, one old co- No Country for Old Men, that kind of mode. And then there's like their more bizarre and sort of playful comedy side, sort of the Big Lebowski and, uh, and, and those and those type of movies, Raising Arizona, for instance. And so for a serious man... I don't. I when I when I when I started watching. Usually, when I go into a Coen Brother movie, I know what I'm gonna get. Uh, I know what I'm going into, and I remember going into a Serious Man opening night, and the whole audience there, and then the parable started, uh, mm. <laughs> and you could just hear like the collective sigh of "What the hell are we watching here?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I don't think that feeling ever went away because the movie is so sort of tonally strange. Yeah. Uh, and revisiting it again, I was just sort of struck by just how strange the movie is uh, and how mean-spirited it is um, and I kind of I kind of love it I kinda, it's 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 it feels like its own thing within the Coen Brothers sort of filmography and I, I kind of dig this I really love this movie actually. that's great yeah. before we we get your thoughts Austin I just want to note I, I liked your point that it's kind of different tonally from other Coen Brothers films because even the the actors it's, they use the Coen yeah. Brothers are kind of famous for using a lot of the same people yeah. not a lot of repeat offenders here mm. um, Austin what what do you think about a serious man Mm, yeah, I mean, the first time I saw it was right in the throngs of like my religious studies. I was studying theology when the film came out. And so I had heard that this was an intentional retread of Job. And Job is one of my favorite poems in the Jewish Old Testament, right? Or the Jewish Bible, I should say, the Christian Old Testament. Um, and so I was really excited <laughs> to kind of go in and see what this modern retelling of Job was all about. And so I loved it when I first saw it because I thought it was a very clever and subdued way of talking about loss and tragedy and uncertainty and maybe absurdity. And then rather than being so like it isn't it isn't like over the top right like it isn't like oh woe is me everything is crazy my world is falling apart it's like this very subtle form of tragedy but it's also set within suburban middle class america which i am from the suburbs so very different suburbs but I kind of get the suburban malaise and things like that. So I found intellectually quite stimulating, personally quite stimulating. And then I think socially, I thought it was really cool. And then watching it last night, I think I kind of, I was less 
I, I was, I mean, I was focusing on the themes cause I was preparing to try to like suck out whatever meaning there was that we could, so we could talk about it on the cast. But I was more interested in like the formal and aesthetic elements, the acting, um, Deacon's cinematography, which I think is re- really understated in this film, but it's beautiful. Um, the color palette I think is fantastic. The neighborhood in which they shot it is perfect. It kind of reminds me of a real life Edward Scissorhands. Remember the suburbs in Edward Scissorhands? I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's like super pastel-y and obviously that's yeah. intentional. But... I think it's Bloomington, Minnesota. Hmm. Or no. Oh, this is going to kill me. It's wherever the famous hospital is in Minnesota. Where there, is it like the Mayo Clinic? And they did some filming at St. Olaf. Didn't you Rochester. do some work at St. Olaf back in the day, brother? Yeah, they filmed the the scene with the big blackboard and when he's talking about yeah. the cat in the box. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen that classroom in real life before. Transform- <laughs> I went on a, a pilgrimage of sorts. Yeah, so so anyway, all that to say, I think it, it's a really interesting film. I don't know if I would say it's a great film, but in their filmography, I find it to be very unique and something worthy of attention. And it's one of those things that actually, I like. I enjoyed it more this time than, I, I've seen it like four or five times now, but I think I really enjoyed it this time, oddly enough. Um, maybe it's because oh, wow. I've just become a little bit desensitized to the just unceasing like tragedy that I kind of was able mm. to enjoy the humor and the subtlety and kind of the dark absurdity a little bit more this time around. Well, I, both of your takes are so good. I'll only say this in terms of first impressions. Um, I've long thought, I think, I still think it's the conceptual masterpiece of the Coen brothers' uh, filmography. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of getting at a a position on on philosophy, on meaning, on religion, I think they take a lot of these ideas they explore in minimal ways throughout their other films, and they cram it all together right here, which makes it a dense film and a film mm. that can be kind of a bummer yeah um it's not a film that makes me feel particularly good but it's a film that i love <laughs> uh so before we go further <laughs> let me just give a, a a quick summary just in case anyone hasn't seen it in a while or you've never seen it and you're not gonna see it but you still want to hang out i want you to feel included uh so here's the film it opens with a jewish parable from the old country that's maybe connected to the film maybe isn't probably is not and then we cut to the inside of a young man's ear as he listens to to the Jefferson Airplane during Hebrew class. He makes a weak attempt to pay drug dealer Mike Fagel for some weed, but gets his ancient iPod-looking thing and 20 bucks confiscated. He's now on Fagel's shit list. At the same time, his father is getting his annual physical and x-ray with a doctor so careful he makes sure to offer him a cigarette at the end. Uh, we cut to the class, and we see our protagonist, Larry Gopnik, teaching physics and dealing with Clive, a South Korean student who finds his poor grade to be unjust and tries to bribe Larry with a fat stack of cash. We then hear the voice of his soon-to-be nemesis, Cy Abelman, for the first time. If you've seen this movie, you know the name, Cy Abelman. Cy then demands that Larry get a get, uh, a ritual Jewish divorce, so that he can steal his wife in the properly religious fashion. Uh, Cy later shows up to Larry's house with a bottle of wine, and he insists that Larry let it breathe for 10 minutes. Oh, and Larry also has a brother with a disgusting cyst who drinks orange juice out of the fridge like a monster and is working on his own probability <laughs> map of the universe called the Metaculus. 
Larry soon finds out from the chair of his department, because he's a physics professor, that he's been receiving eloquently written letters from someone who thinks Larry isn't morally suited for tenure. Um, and his goy neighbor is annexing part of Larry's yard to build a boat shed. The tension builds. Uh, in, in a moment where he's feeling very stressed, doesn't know why this is all is happening in his life, he gets the advice to seek out advice from rabbis. So we see him go on a quest and talks to three different rabbis and gets life, sorry, tries to talk to three, talks to two, gets life-changing advice like, change your perspective, look at the parking lot. Uh, and here's a weird story about a goy's teeth that ultimately means nothing. We then get a cosmic coincidence, double car crash. Larry rear-ends someone and Cy Abelman dies. And Larry ends up paying for the funeral of the man that was mid-stealing his wife. Yikes. After the funeral, things get worse. The cops show up to warn them that Uncle Arthur, Larry's brother, is gambling. It gets worse than gambling, folks. Uh, then Larry has a pretty rad hang session with his neighbor, Miss Samsky, where they drink iced tea, smoke weed, and vibe out to some psychedelic tunes. But the vibe is broken by Uncle Arthur when the cops show up and arrest him for solicitation and sodomy in North Dakota. We finally get a glimpse of the famed Rabbi Marshak, but he's busy thinking and won't talk to Larry. Cut to... A thank God it's a dream sequence where Larry tries to help his brother escape to Canada and they are hunted by their goy neighbors. He wakes up and finally it's the day of Danny's bar mitzvah. And Danny has ripped off the marijuana but somehow manages to get through his Torah portion with the help of a rabbi. He then gets a one-on-one -on -one with the famed rabbi Marshak and his life-changing wisdom is some song lyrics and the command to be a good boy. Things are going pretty good. Larry gets a heads up that he's going to get tenure and Danny gets his ancient iPod back so it seems like everything is good. But then Larry gets a $3,000 lawyer bill. He changes Clive's failing grade to use his bribe money to cover it. The second he changes the grade, the phone rings. It's his doctor. He wants to talk about his chest x-ray. He needs to be there in person. We assume it's cancer. Meanwhile, at Danny's school, a tornado is on the way. The kids get stuck outside on their way to the basement of the synagogue. Presumably, Larry is going to die, and Danny and his classmates probably die, too. The end. That's the film. Now I'm <laughs> excited to get into this feel-good story. But before we do, I'm going to talk about something that actually makes me feel good. That we have sponsors for this podcast that enable us to do this, and we're excited about them. And I want to tell you about them. So first, I don't know if either of you, Austin and Tommy, are trying to make 2020 a year to remember where you learned some new things. I mean, who isn't? Exactly. When we're still in January. So I think we're still giving ourselves that mulligan month of like, as long as we do a new habit by the end of January, it's, it's always, real. Yep, yep. There's always time. Always time. And this is why I think Skillshare is awesome. It's an online learning community where millions of curious minds come together to continue their own creative journeys. With thousands of classes and topics ranging from graphic design to photography to web development to crafts. I don't know if we have physics. I can check. Uh, because I am trying to really work on being a better writer in 2020, mm. writing more. I know it's something mm. all of us do. Ditto. Um, I, yeah, I'm checking out this course called Creative Writing for All, a 10-day journaling challenge by Emily Gould, a writer that I've loved for years, and, and she's a good Twitter follow. Um, and it's cool. Like Journaling might not sound like a hip or cool thing, but it's a way of just getting you to write a little bit every day and get those juices flowing. Now, one of the best parts about Skillshare is that it's really affordable, especially compared to taking a class in person. You can get an annual subscription for less than $10 a month, and you can get two months of free premium membership right now by going to Skillshare.com slash wisecrack so guys why not come along with me learn something new in 2020 it makes more sense than the gym membership you're gonna use three times and they won't let you out of the contract you're just gonna feel bad about yourself even if you fail at this no one will know so go to skillshare.com slash wisecrack today and start your free two-month premium membership now learning skills is good 
You know what else I like? I like, I like health. A theme of this movie is going to the doctor to get checked out. Um, it's awkward for Larry. What if you didn't have to go to the doctor? What if you used Let's Get Checked, which is an accredited at-home testing service with the mission to make health screening open and patient-led. Now, there, there's some stuff that we go to the doctor for we feel comfortable with. Oh, I have a, I have a cold. My arm hurts. You know what I don't want to go to the doctor and say? I think I might have an STD. Uh, now, many of them are asymptomatic, and 51% of people, that's more than half, don't get tested because they don't want to bring up sex or STDs with their healthcare provider. Okay, Over one in two Americans will contract an STD at some point in their lifetimes. There's three of us on this podcast. Do the math. So, use Let's Get Checked. You can get tested for STDs. You can get tested for your testosterone levels. Maybe you're worried that you've been eating pizza and feeling bad, so you get your gluten allergy test. It's easy. Go online, order your kit. It's going to come in a discreet package. You activate it, follow the instructions. You send your sample back with a prepaid label, and they have a team of physicians that are going to review your results. Nursing team, ready to talk to you about it. And if you need drugs, I hope you don't. I hope you're good. They'll set you up with that. And you can get your own Let's Get Checked kit today by using the link in the description of our show. Uh, when you use the promo code SHOWME at checkout, you will get 40% off your entire order 40 percent. okay so i want you to go i want you to go to let's get checked i want you to get involved i want you to sign up for an account i want you to use the, co the code show me and i want you to be healthy is that okay that i want that for our be listeners? healthy <laughs> listen it's important okay i know i said that and it sounded sarcastic but i'm serious be healthy <laughs> be healthy learn stuff with skillshare get tested well let's get checked and now back to a serious man so there's a lot to unpack here. Does anyone have something that they want to get started with? Um, I mean, you did you did say that you were unsure if the folklore or the folktale at the beginning relates to the rest of the film. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Talk about the folktale. Yeah, a let's bit. start with yeah. that. I mean, I think that it, it does absolutely connect to the rest of the film. Um, I know that the Coen brothers, they wanted to attach some sort of Yiddish folktale to the film. And so they couldn't find one that fit. So they wrote their own, uh, which I think is kind of rad. But I think, <laughs> yes, I think that the, the fact that the, the Rebbe, his picture is on the wall. Uh, when, uh, when Larry goes to try to talk to Marshak, if you look over his shoulder, there's a picture of the, how do you say it? Dibbuk? D the Dibbuk? The Dibbuk? Yeah. Um, that there's a picture of him over over Larry's shoulder, which means that there's, you know, there's a type of lineage, obviously, in the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood. But so there's a type of uh, tradition that's connected to and a type of history. And so I think that that's kind of an intentional way of connecting the the history, if you will, of what we're, what we're seeing in A Serious Man in the, the late 60s to the kind of previous past uh folklores that have uh that have characterized or that have that have narrativized if you will uh, the the jewish tradition you know yeah no i i totally i for me that prologue is it definitely functions that way and i never noticed the the picture behind uh, the person uh, but, but to me it it sort of thematically serves as sort of a parable for for the film itself and what's to follow so in this parable parable you have you know 
these two these two people who are sort of confronted with someone who may be a Dybbuk, a spirit, or who may not be, he may just be a rabbi. And so it's how do we perceive the the events that happen to us? You know, this guy, his husband, he's in a storm, his cart his cart breaks. Oh my God, a miracle. There's this rabbi nearby. He saves me. The <laughs> wife perceives it as, you know, this horrific event. You have been visited by an evil spirit. It's how do we perceive the the misfortune or the fortunes that happen around us? Um, and, and to me, that's what the movie's about. And that's what this parable is sort of setting up for us. I like it. I agree. But yeah, I think it, it relates in that general way. I think if yes. you're looking for a sort of like one-to-one I think the first time I saw it, that was my sense because uh-huh. I, I think I over, oh, not overestimated. I, I took it a little too literally and thought the Coens are showing me this because there's a secret, mm-hmm. and I need to find the secret uh, yeah. in in the parable sure. to make sense of the movie. I, I started to enjoy the parable more when I gave up that desire uh-huh. to make well, that connection. I, it's funny you said it because I, I think the movie itself says that where um, when he's telling the math problem for sort of Schrodinger's cat and he uses the, the cat model and he's mm-hmm. like, you know, this doesn't really explain the math 100%. The parable never really explains mm-hmm. the actual fact. So I think that's leaning into the the parable sort of serves the purpose of the thematic point, but it's hard to, you know, 100% sort of cement the, what the movie is trying to say. Yeah. And I think maybe talking about the parable at the beginning gets us into mm-hmm. one of the themes of the movie that we're, we're going to talk about other ways. So Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Get it going. Uh, which is religion. I, I think in terms of a theme that's at least in the background of a lot of Coen Brothers films that have not religion explicitly, like morality in general. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the, the number one way people sort of perceive the world around them is oftentimes through religion. Mm-hmm. They turn to religion as a way to sort of define the events that, that befall them. Or, and I think that, 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 that is what the Coen Brothers are trying to do here. Yeah, Austin, as a man who has studied religion and, and so, no i'm just i'm complimenting you you don't have to take it <laughs> no, no i was about to say i intro you as a yeah. man who has studied religion at, at multiple levels and all types of depth and who thinks about this sort of stuff as, as what does this movie say to you what do you take away from this movie and the way it, it, it sort of deals with theological issues i mean textually if you look at the story of job of which this is an intentional retread there's a lot of discussion about the difference between the prologue in job which is prose which is where god and satan make the deal about whether or not they should test job and then the actual poem of the text itself and the the scholarly debate goes basically like this we don't really know when it was written it's potential that this is the most ancient of all of the old testament texts it might also be kind of relatively new but there's definitely agreement that the prologue the prose prologue where the deal is made that that is an, a later edition but that still may have been like a perpetual itself kind of retreading of uh, typical Jewish folklore that there's this sense in which we don't know why tragedy befalls us maybe it's god testing us Or, as some people will say, who don't like the prose prologue, and they say, well, there's not a lot of value in it, they would say, actually, we don't know what's going on. That was just just some later sort of scribes trying to justify suffering in the world, that it could be all for our, like, sanctification or for our benefit or something like that. But that really, we need to just throw our hands in the air and say, we have no fucking clue. 
And so I think that tension of is there someone kind of like are we puppets that are, you know, at, like living at the behest of this divine plan or some sort of gamble or whatever it is? Or is there just kind of cosmic absurdity and we don't really know? In the Jewish tradition, more so than definitely the Christian tradition, has really kind of, I think, done a great job of exploring that theme of uncertainty and absurdity. And that's why a lot of, like, that's why I love the second rabbi who gives the tale about the goy's teeth. And Larry's yeah. expecting this infinite wisdom. And he kind of is just like, yeah, that's the story. So you kind of get the, 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 the prologue of the film, this Yiddish folk tale, that it kind of doesn't really have any immediate connection, like you say, like it doesn't give you the answers to the later story. And then the rest of the film itself is kind of its own folk tale. It doesn't really give you any answers. It kind of just leaves you asking more questions. And then even and then even like the supposed infinite wisdom of Marshak, the final rabbi that's supposed to be able, he's the one thinking and pondering. Even he's just like, be a good boy. You know, like even that. Well, is yeah. Like, and since you brought up the second rabbi, I do just want to jump in real quick. because yeah, yeah. There is that quote where Larry says to him, talking about God, why does he make us feel the questions if he's not going to give us any answers? Yeah. So that idea too, that like, he's basically saying, why, why has God imbued us with these desires of knowledge if we don't get the damn answers? Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I love how he is a physicist and how for mm -hmm. him, mathematics is the answer, right? Like he thinks that mathematics gives us the answer, but yet there is no algorithm, there is no equation that will allow him to input any variables to actually reach the divine, if you will, or to reach the absolute. Like, you're still stuck. Like, maybe the mentaculus, maybe you can, you can devise something, <laughs> but it's still never resolved. Yeah, and that parallel, I think, is, is super interesting between religion and physics. Like, two explanatory systems that people use to explain everything and, and kind of the two poles of sometimes the most obnoxious human behaviors, <laughs> right? We, we either can, can be the type of person that like uses religion to explain everything in a way that maybe annoys people that are, are more obsessed with like rationality. And then there's mm -hmm. the rationality bro who wants to explain everything in logical terms and anything that's not logical doesn't make sense. I mean, should, does, the, does the movie argue one way or the other? Like how should Larry react in this situation? Yeah. Uh, does he do anything wrong? Uh, because he is, punished in this He's movie punished so hardcore bad. uh <laughs> yeah i mean i think and and please uh y'all interrupt me and jump in on this whenever you want but i mean i think eventually uh, both fail like mm -hmm. physics and math don't help him at the end of the day no. religion doesn't help him at the end of the day there's there's an absurdity to reality that neither of those systems at least as he is looking into them really uh, account for or at least mm -hmm. he maybe on their own math and, and Judaism will account for that sort of absurdity or meaninglessness, but he's not getting that. <laughs> well, and, I mean, and I do think, in, the, go well, ahead, Austin. I was going to say, there is something amazing, too, in like the Kabbalistic tradition, and they kind of talk about it, right? Where uh, like certain characters in Hebrew correspond to certain numbers, right? And so there is a sense in which like there is a mysteriousness maybe to even the language of mathematics that opens us up to more. And maybe that's kind of intentionally trying to say, hey, it isn't language and it isn't like faith and our regimes of meaning that will save us, but neither is it these hardcore numbers, but they kind of, they point to each other and then they ultimately stand there with their arms open and they say, well, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, to me, this is a guy who who thinks that if he does the right things, he's going to be rewarded for mm-hmm. that, and so he's not rewarded for it, and he can't sort of he can't figure out why what he's doing wrong. And I, I think the answer for for me at least watching this movie, watching the, watching it again, the answer is there is no reason why anything bad happens to Larry. There there is there is no answers to be found in this movie. Um, uh, the the storm that happens at mm-hmm. the end, it's gonna happen anyway, even if he changes the grade or not. He's always going to be sick at the end potentially going to die at the end of this movie uh and questioning that doesn't do you any good i mean larry is sort of a man of inaction in this movie he doesn't do anything and he's always having all these dreams about what he should be doing he should be helping his brother go to canada he should be you know screwing the neighbor uh but then every time in his dream he sort of punished he punishes himself for Mm. it you know the his his Mm -hmm. uh, alan gets shot in the head you know he gets boarded up in the dream when he's having sex with the neighbor and so there's this thought of you know I, i can't do these things because they're bad uh they're wrong or or, or it'll cause destruction but it it doesn't matter because he doesn't do anything and it causes his destruction anyway (laughs) so i guess it's a question of you know how to be moral or is it even worth being moral in a universe that is governed by sort of chaos and nothingness yeah 100 percent. i think that that theme of inaction is so crucial and i think that's you know it's two different ways to think about religion in this film as Mm -hmm. it's interpreted is religion a set of systems that constrain behavior or is it a way of belief that enables action choice subjectivity and freedom Mm -hmm. and he is clearly gone on the former side of that and that's why in a weird way i think there's some wisdom to the second rabbi rabbi knockner who kind of comes off as an idiot in the context of the film Mm -hmm. but like maybe on well, rewatch, he's he's smarter than we give him credit for. It's almost like his inaction is caused by his sort of religious, sort of his religious background that he doesn't think he can do these things because then he'll be punished by mm-hmm. by God. Yeah, um, and, well, and that's why I think the parallel you brought this up with the tornado at the end mm-hmm. is so important because it's it's one movie if he changes Clive's grade. And then immediately, you know, presumably yeah. gets cancer or whatever. But but Danny didn't really do anything. If anything, he he passed his Torah portion like a good boy. And him and his friends, including famed drug dealer Mike Fagel, are about to get tornadoed up. <laughs> and, and I think there's this interesting parallel, too, where for Larry, Judaism is taken very seriously. He's, he's pursuing r- rabbinic wisdom. Danny, on the other hand, how does he learn his Torah portion? He listens to a record. He doesn't learn how to read Hebrew. He he performs. <laughs> and he smokes the weed while he's act. actually he smoked, getting yeah. while he's yeah. in his bar mitzvah, you know. Yeah, but for him, it's like a performative ritual yeah. that you got to do. Whereas for Larry, he's really looking to this to provide guidance for his life. Yeah, yeah. But he still he still thinks that he's going to be rewarded for being being religious. Like he thinks that if he's you know if he does the right things, everything should come to him naturally. And so mm-hmm. th- I mean I think that's what sort of set, sets him off on sort of his existential crisis is that he's like I'm a serious man. I have a I've done everything right. Why uh, why am I being punished by this god if I've done everything right? Well, you know what's uh, great in that speech. You know what he says. He starts to say I'm a serious man, and then he stops himself mm-hmm. and he says I try to be a serious <laughs> yes. man, mm-hmm. and I. Th- think that there's something so lovely about that that effort right like like can you do enough to earn the favor of god or Mm -hmm. does it not fucking matter and this goes to the heart of one of the central concerns about like legalism and religion like do you do things thurgically where you do certain practices like uh, sacramental practices so that you can please the gods and appease uh, whatever the whims are so that your crops will be bountiful or so that you can get out of exile, for example, in ancient Jewish thought, right? Um, 
And so it's what can you do in order to kind of please the gods? And then, of course, there are other people in the rabbinic tradition that are like, no, 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 you misunderstand. It's not how you can earn it or appease the gods or kind of mitigate uncertainty. It's about kind of remaining faithful to the call or to what is just or to what is right, which is more maybe more the existential kind of reading of it. Yeah, that's legit. So let's uh, while we're kind of uh, finishing up talking about religion and, and math stuff, let's talk about the mentaculus. Um, <laughs> so th- it's just it's interesting if you take that out of the movie, all the themes we're talking about still stand. But the fact that his uh, clearly a little bit weird brother Arthur has this psychotic-looking notebook. To be blunt, <laughs> well, if I if I was sitting next to someone on like the bus and I saw them doing that, I'd be like, oh, I want to get off. <laughs> um, but he has this thing called the Mentaculus, which does something because he wins money ga- gambling and he gives to Danny, that I'm sure Danny gives to another local narcotics dealer. Um, but what do we think the Mentaculus means, or what are they trying to get us to think about with that? I mean, isn't it like, isn't it like uh, that that like he's the holy fool? That he's mm. he's the um, he's the one who's like possessed, right, by some other type of spirit. He's the one who doesn't believe in like the mathematical, rational algorithms of uh, physics, but uh, he also doesn't fit culturally in the world. He's kind of this mm. this outsider, right? And so his calculations they might seem crazy from both of those poles, but Larry at least thinks, well, is there wisdom in this? Is there something in this? Is there a divine mystery here that that I might be able to find the answers to? And then they never pursue it really. Like they don't really like wrap it up and you don't really know like was the mentaculus just nonsense or was it something that was useful mm-hmm. or like how is this guy winning all this money gambling and he loves cards and his life falls apart when he is not able to do it anymore and he gets in trouble and shit. And so we don't really know, but I feel like that's it is that it's kind of like this foolishness, this holy foolishness that is beyond typical human comprehension. Yeah. Also, I think like the Richard Kind character sort of serves as a nice sort of counterbalance to sort of Larry, uh, the Michael Stewart character, because I mean, Michael Stewart is constantly questioning, you know, why is this all happening to me? You know, uh, all the worst things are happening. And then I think in the most sort of powerful and emotional scene, you have, you know, the brother being like, uh, I wish I had your life, basically, yeah. mm-hmm. he tells him by the pool, uh, you know, uh, you have it so much easier than I do. And I think that the, the, the perception of, you know, trauma and your life and all the circumstances that befall you uh, really plays into that sort of interaction. Definitely. And yeah, and I think there's that interesting scene where the Richard Kind character, uh, Uncle Arthur, yeah. is by the lake. Uh, mm, he's yeah. so excited about bottling air to make a million bucks. I love that too. just cuts from there too. He screams like, if someone could bottle this air, they'd make a million bucks mm-hmm. and then just cut, fade to black. I think we go to the, the rabbis at that point. <laughs> but hearing Larry describe him to his friend with the leg braces, um, clearly a shout out to Forrest Gump. Uh, mm. The Coen brothers famously said it's their favorite movie. Everything they do is an ode to... No, they've never said that, nor would they. Um, but but talking about him and kind of, you know, saying he, he, he tries, he goes to mixers at Hillel House. Mm. He's doing mm. his best. But yeah, it doesn't fit in with this world. And I think, Austin, that, that holy fool references. That's good. That's I mean, real good. There's something interesting, too, that like I don't think I... It's such a small little scene and such a small moment. And the character is so understated. But the woman that he's talking with at the lake during that, that Larry's talking with, like mm-hmm. she, she never comes back again, right? Like no. that's the only scene. But she says something about tradition. 
and she yeah she yeah what she, what, she makes the point that it. like as Jews they have these stories and in those stories are wisdom and tradition so she kind of like gets Larry going down this path of seeking out that rabbinic wisdom but I also wonder this it's it's so interesting because she says the Jewish tradition has this wisdom from which we can draw but the wisdom itself oftentimes throws its hands in the air and says, well, let's just keep questioning. So it's almost like this endless reference to questioning and questioning and questioning, but not actually ever giving answers, even if the answer is to just keep questioning. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, I think that probably is the most, uh, I don't want to say optimistic, but positive reading of what's going on here <laughs> with religion. That religion is uh primarily a way of asking questions and not a way of getting answers to those questions and that's, and that's kind of why i said earlier i think it is philosophically one of the cohen's most interesting movies because it doesn't i, I at least don't take away from it that life is meaningless i take away that life is absurd outside of our yeah, control totally. and looking for structural understanding is meaningless but if anything we learn to like ask the right questions and and stay open to the fact that things might fall apart. Tommy, what are you thinking? I, I think it's far more bleak because I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm stretching. I don't no, know. I mean, following sort of No Country for Old Men and Burn After yeah. Reading where, you know, I mean, at the end of No Country for Old Men, Tommy Lee Jones is like, I give up. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the God isn't here <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to go home. Uh, I mean, this movie feels super bleak. I mean, this is a guy looking for answers f uh, from God and getting nothing in return. <laughs> but see, that's what I think is so interesting. I almost I, I almost weirdly think that this is like a love story to American conservative and reform Judaism. Hmm. And um, like in the midst of middle class suburbanization kind of thing, right? Well, that makes that, sense because it is their yeah, childhood. It is their childhood. Yeah, yes. I mean, this is like the time they grew up. They they found a neighbor that looked like, I think they grew up in like, it's like St. Louis Park outside of it. It's like a neighbor in Minneapolis that's historically Jewish. Like, it really is an ode to that. So I think there's something to that, Austin. Yeah, and and it just like I get the bleakness and the absurdity, and and you're I think you're both right in that. But I almost weirdly think that there's also kind of a weird appreciation and love for the fact that one of the things that the Jews have in the midst of all of this absurdity is precisely tradition. That's the thing that grounds them. And I think so many other religious, not so many other, particularly the American evangelical religious system does not have that. Right? Like. American Protestants think that you have uh, the time of Jesus and then they kind of they go to the time of Acts and then they skip over medieval philosophy, medieval theology, the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. They skip over the Enlightenment and they go to Luther and the Protestant Reformation. It's like there's no deep seated connection to history. And then, of course, Christianity is supposed to be like the culmination of what the Jews misunderstood. So they, they again cut things off. Right. But there isn't a flow that connects you to history, whereas the Jewish tradition tradition is endless. And Job himself was not an Israelite. I mean, according to some rabbinic readings, he himself was from the land of Uz, I think. Um, and so this is before exile, which means this is before the constitution of the Israelite people. So some people even refer to Job as being a quote unquote Gentile. He hasn't he hasn't he wasn't a part of um, the Jewish community, even though he still worships Yahweh. So there's something really interesting about this huge, massive tradition from which you can draw that goes all the way back to like fucking ancient Samaria and beyond, and that all of that connects together. And so it's a real like, we don't know the answers, we have no fucking clue, the universe is cosmically absurd, but we have this history that we can attach ourselves to, and that's that's adequate. Wow. 
Wow. <laughs> that was that was good. Um so so I wonder then and I don't want to maybe we shouldn't go too far down this road, but the Cohen brothers these guys are, these guys are filmmakers. They they know what they're doing. They know yeah. what they're doing and I think that I for me at least it's hard to ever think about a Cohen brothers film as detached from their films as a whole, um, thematically, stylistic, all that sort of stuff. So how, how how do you all place this film, or how, how does the sort of broader Coen Brothers extended universe uh, affect the way you interpret this film from from a storytelling and filmmaking point of view? Yeah. Tony, I mean, I yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, it is the outlier in their filmography. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the movie that is bridging their more sort of serious, uh, I guess, their more serious films, mm-hmm. uh, Miller's Crossing and you know uh, Fargo and those kind of movies, with the more sort of slapstick comedies. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a a tragic comedy, and so uh, it's hard to even sort of play, like a. I don't know. I don't know where it, mm-hmm. it's. It's totally different than anything else they've they've mm-hmm. done, and they've ever and they have done since. It's totally separate. Yeah, I mean the closest thing tonally a little over overlap with Inside Lewin Davis, but it's such a different yeah, story. But it's, it's another story about it's it's really bleak. But Lewin Davis, he kind of I don't want to say he has it coming, mm-hmm. but he does make some decisions and, sure. they're, and they're not good. So yeah, Austin, what do you think about this in terms of of the Coen Brothers films? I didn't even think about that connection with Lewin Davis, which is one of my favorite of their films. I would I think tonally and in terms of pacing, absolutely like that's that's actually a really good kind of fit with it. But in terms of conceptually and everything else, I agree with Tommy. I think that this is a very strange film within their broader filmography. It's almost like they decided, you know how sometimes the joke is like for like Soderbergh, for example, he's like, he'll do one for them and then one for me and then one for them and then one for me. I feel like this yeah. is the film for them. Totally. Yeah. And not like that none of their yeah. other films are, but like this is like their like you were just talking about, they grew up in this neighborhood. This is this is an ode to their childhood. This is a hundred percent about us growing up in a conservative Jewish family. This is our experience. This is our unique view on the world. But then they're broadening it out to this larger tale within suburban America. But I think it's very much this is for us film, and because of that, that's why it is kind of the outlier. Yeah, I mean, it even looks different. Totally. Than a standard color. Yeah. You, you know, oh, yeah. and I think, uh, Austin, was it you were mentioning the cinematographer? Yeah, Deacon. Yeah, yeah Deacons. Deacons. Yeah. yeah. All right. What, what do we know about Deacons? He's, he's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, you know, he's new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're going to be talking about 1917 next week. He is also the cinematographer for that. Um, he's known. Oh, my God. I, I truly didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. wow. It would have been so great yeah. if we could have started next week by being like, we continue our exploration of the films yep. of Deacon. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he's he's one of the most um, uh, praised cinematographers. But this film is so strange because, you know, like 1917, we don't want to talk about it too much, but it's it's shot like a supposed to be a single take. And mm-hmm. it's beautiful and epic in scope. And um, it's you can tell that. That it's that it's like an art piece, a cinematic, mm-hmm. visual, moving image art piece. Whereas this, which you're is the like, vibe oh, you it's... get from like this, yeah. But he makes the Minnesota, like Minneapolis suburbs, have this intensity to them. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, is it's like this really it's like subtle, an ominous look thing, though, right? Yeah. I mean, don't you think? I, it's almost like the subtleness hits you constantly, so then it becomes more dramatic. But it's so understated, and I think that's what's so beautiful about it. And then I think people don't realize how hard it is to do that. Like. 
you don't just stick a camera at it, you know, like <laughs> framing and color it's not palettes. not a filter and... you add after the fact on, on an app you get? Yeah, yeah, exa- that's the problem is everybody thinks they're a fucking photo editor now because of the filters, <laughs> Instagram filters. You can't get like a Deacon style film just from the filters, people. Uh, but you it can't is so, just and, fix and it another... in post, man. <laughs> Other curious filmmaking question for y'all. Does it mean anything that it's a cast of people they hadn't used before? And including the the children weren't even actors. They did like these open auditions in the Midwest. So these weren't people they're were pulling from the, the Hollywood system. So mm. Yeah, I mean most most people in the movie weren't very well known when, no. when they made the movie. And I feel like that's a deliberate choice. because uh, I, I feel like, you know, when you cast Brad Pitt or you cast George Clooney, there's baggage mm-hmm. there. And it's uh, mm. you're watching, oh, it's George Clooney doing this movie. In this mm-hmm. movie, uh Michael Stubart uh, wasn't wasn't particularly well known at the time. No. And so I think there's a level of, oh, I can I I put myself into that movie. I can project myself onto this everyman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows sort of the viewers to sort of be in his mindset. Because I think uh, like Richard Kind is probably Richard when I first the most saw famous this, person yeah. in the movie, probably. Yeah. And and just uh, a Richard Kind, uh, he's great. He's rarely the most famous yeah. person in a project. But I think you're right. <laughs> and I think there's like a distance too where you make this point really well. If I'm watching Brad Pitt in something, we can go pretty deep and dark, but it's still Brad Pitt. Yep. Um when when you don't know the actor, there's just a realness to it. And I think you get this emotional connection to them like as a real person because you've never like you have no kid, baggage the kid who plays danny i've never seen him before i've never seen him since that's who you are to me yeah. <laughs> you know sorry I hope, if you're listening to this i hope it's going well um you're probably so much more successful than me but uh, yeah but i think there's something interesting because the coen brothers you go through their films they're double dipping all the time we got a lot of brolin totally. we're using Clooney multiple yeah. times i mean they like this a like, good man yeah. jesus um I won't go down the list. I, yeah. I think with such a sort of simple story, uh, sort of, I mean, there aren't a lot of like moves uh, or dramatic beats in this that like are like, oh my God, what just happened? Uh, I think it's good that it's not, it doesn't have that sort of big name personality in the movie. Mm-hmm. It allows itself to be more grounded um, a little bit. Doesn't it also make casting. make uh, Larry's character weaker? Like you were saying, if it's Brad Pitt yes. or George Clooney, mm-hmm. we infuse oh, yeah. the star power into them and you're like, no matter mm-hmm. how much you beat up Brad Pitt, he's still fucking gorgeous and built and whatever else and successful same with george clooney right whereas this guy he can really play the character of the schlemiel which is what he's doing this 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 ineffectual kind of pushed around someone who's just pulverized through the mundanity of the world and then of course through the tragedies that befall him and then you're like oh fuck man he really is getting beaten and his subtle his subtle emotional breakdown where he doesn't have one of the moments like his brother does where he's running around screaming, even though you think that he could, he kind of still has a, a power and a strength through it all, even though he's broken in the sense that he doesn't let himself just completely crumble, maybe until the end, which is where it cuts out and we don't get to see the breakdown, but maybe that's it, you know? Yeah. And just to reward repeat listeners and tie in a little bit, I mean, this is something we saw when we talked about Uncut Gems, the use of actors who it was their first role or they were unknowns or they were just non-professional actors. It really adds something to the depth of that world and makes the performances more compelling. So fun theme. Okay, before we, we, we sort of transition out of this formal discussion, what, what meat is left on the bone? Anything that y'all have, have wanted to say, thoughts we still have? I want to make sure everyone leaves today feeling like they left it all out on the field. <laughs> That's a sports <laughs> reference as a bunch of athletes. I have a question. Do you think that there's a larger commentary on just suburbia? I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, maybe ob- obliquely, but like, do you think there's something in, like intentional about how suburbia itself exacerbates 
the absurdity, the cosmic absurdity that we are thrown into. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's the uh, one of the things that drives Larry crazy is that his neighbor is infringing mm-hmm. on his lawn by a couple <laughs> right. inches, and so it's like, this is my piece of heaven. How could you? How could you infringe on it? This sort of uh, this implication that that this little box of suburbia is somehow going to make your life perfect, uh, which I think was sort of sold, uh, and, and I think it's revealing these things to potentially uh, not not be as you know uh, true and and, and yeah. great. As, as they seem. Well, and what is suburbia if yeah. not this way of living life where you ignore every real problem in the world and act like it doesn't apply <laughs> yeah. to you, right? That's right. Like, I, I grew up in a suburb for most of my life and, like, they true. it was truly this little void of anything. Like, there was no culture, but there wasn't really any crime and we were all kind mm-hmm. of the same homogenous thing. And I remember once, I think it was my mom tried to, like, paint her house or something and the neighborhood community organization, right. Gestapo, were like, <laughs> were like, no! And she yeah. like, fill out forms and all the shit and the people that are on on the little internal Gestapo committees in the suburbs, they feed off that power so much because their life is fundamentally meaningless. So you would like <laughs> find meaning and power. So yeah, I do think Austin, that's a commentary in the suburbs. Every but everyone, anyone else is a suburbs person, and and you're you're amongst company here. Or Tommy, are you a suburbs person, or do you grow up in an urban environment? I grew up in a more urban environment. So cool. So, so cool. cool. So cool. Though. I am you're like so, so cool, artsy, like, man. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm. I hey, I'm seeing some stuff you're not seeing right now. Um, but that's a good point. So I live in like a suburb. I mean, I will now, say so. this. Yeah, yeah. Anyone who lives in <laughs> LA lives doesn't in LA, get to be yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Unless you live in like four blocks yeah. of downtown. If you ever listen to like pop punk music, pop punk music is the music that emerged out of disaffected white boys that are suburban, right? Like, because it's all about. The girl who like the problems that they have, it's not political, it's not social. Pop punk is all about like the girl or your friends or getting out of the town. That's the big thing, right? So, Less than Jake. Yeah. Like, I swear it's the last time like, we're gonna get out of this fucking town, right? That's <laughs> it. It's Florid Floridians and Californians and New Yorkers and whoever it is, all the suburban pop punk bands, it's all about like getting out of the town. And for me, as a boy that grew up in the suburbs of Los Angeles, Los Angeles was like the place of truth, the place of reality. Like our, my, I was in a pop punk band and our first EP, you know, 17 years old was called Life in the Bubble. Because that's what we thought, Guys, if you can find this online, we will pay you self <laughs> copy. We will so pay like, you. This is on the record, $1,000 from and, Wisecracks. And the idea account. was is if we could get out of, if we actually even had a street marked on the 5 freeway. It's called Culver, which is in fucking Irvine, by the way, which is not even Los Angeles. But that's how, that's how, South Orange County we were. We thought that if we could get on the freeway and drive north, once we got to Culver, then like the celestial city of the urban environment where depth and culture and real people, like that was ahead of us. the most sad Bruce Springsteen <laughs> song I've ever heard. <laughs> no, but you know what? I think the greater point you're making is that clearly Danny grows up to be a part of the burgeoning Minneapolis music scene in the, <laughs> the 80s. We have like the replacements and Husker Du and some of those other like early punk bands. So really this is a love letter to the foundational elements of the Minneapolis music scene. Hallelujah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, everyone, please watch it if you haven't. I think, do we all recommend that our, our faithful listeners and viewers give this one a watch? Yeah. Multiple watches. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Everyone everyone should watch it. Great. So when you watch it, get in touch. And just a reminder for everyone, we truly love to hear from you. There's no exaggeration there. It's awesome. The people that listen to this podcast are, are the best. So you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. Tommy, there's no M there. Well, Just co. 
That's confusing. It is. So that's it's why I got to say multiple times. Movies yeah. at wisecrack.co. And you leave us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. Now that you know that, let's dip into the mailbag. Is that okay with everyone? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Okay, so... Um, Let's let's if you were here when we talked about these movies, jump in. If you weren't, jump in. Okay, this is a team sport, like I said before. So we got an email from Greg, uh, and this is about our Uncut Gems episode. Tell me, have you seen Uncut Gems? I have seen Uncut Gems. Then we're good to I go. Like it. So he says this, bringing a Jewish perspective to it, uncut can mean non-new, i.e., uncircumcised. Circumcision is metaphorically in Judaism a way to curb appetite. So perhaps they are connecting it with Howard's drive for the thrill of gambling. It seems a stretch, but with how Jewish the Diamond District and this movie is, choosing to call it uncut seems intentional to me. Do you think non-new was a typo and it was non-Jew? Oh, it might be a typo. So bringing a Jewish perspective to it, <laughs> uncut can mean non-Jew. That is uncertain. I was like, wow, non-new. Mm. Like, what is... <laughs> and it's I'm a capital N, an so you're like, the the new... <laughs> Yeah, I was like, this is some stuff I don't even know about. Austin's going to explain it to us in a genealogical manner. Um, yeah, so so I guess the point there is that if, if circumcision controls appetite, Howie doesn't have that. He's, he's uncircumcised in his raw desire for gambling. I mean, it's a stretch, but it's an interesting it's a, point. But it's, I mean, it's a stretch, and Greg acknowledges that it might be a stretch, so I, I feel like we can say that. Yeah, I mean, Austin so it's like there? he hasn't been he hasn't been incorporated into the symbolic order of Judaism yet, right? So he's mm-hmm. just stuck with the drudge, which is interesting. Okay, I'm gonna totally run with this for a second, but so like, <laughs> yes, Zizek makes a distinction between desire and drives, and desire requires like an external object that induces that desire, right? Uh, drive is just like the pure what we talked about this, the pure kind of like pathological repetition or compulsion towards the thing. So maybe the point is, is that he is uncircumcised in that he hasn't been incorporated into the symbolic order, i.e. desire order. And so therefore he's still stuck within the drive and he's uncircumcised. And that's why he's a compulsive gambler. Boom. What do you think? Wow. I think that long time, show me the meaning listener, Slavoj Zizek is someplace right now agreeing with this. And he's going to write a book in response to what you just said. Yeah. Sounds good. Any any thoughts on that one, Tommy? There's no way I can top Austin's answer. So I know. Uh, I don't try. Well, why do we even? Why, why even bother? I know. I just <laughs> I gotta, cut, cut our mics. You gotta get it off. <laughs> okay, Austin, you're gonna love this. Austin, I got I got an email that that calls you out by name. Oh, oh shit! This is also on Uncut Gems. Okay, this is from Brandon. I was just listening to your Uncut Gems podcast, and a question came up regarding how shows are becoming more and more meta. And the discussion surrounding the question, Austin, that's you, made a comment about how there's a lack of honesty or fear of being genuine. While I totally see the point as it relates to more cynical media that uses meta references as a substitute for originality, is there not something to be said for the fact that as a creator, there is no more direct way to be honest through your work? Also, what does it say that we feel a sense of dishonesty from literally pulling back the curtain is it really honesty we're seeking mm. or to the question of why is it becoming more popular is it possible to say it's because audiences are attracted to the honesty and the feeling of connection when it that, that it creates between viewer and creator just some thoughts keep up the good work thanks brandon austin damn you I started feel, this i feel pinned um 
I think that I think we could give it a go if you want to get your arsenal ready. <laughs> no. I, mean, I think there's there's well, an interesting point, Tommy. What do you yeah. think? Well, is the argument that meta ness is sincere? Is that what they're trying to get at? Do you think? Or? I think so. The idea that like by meta ness, there's a, a reveal of what's really happening, so there yeah. is an honesty I don't know. there. I don't, I, but I think I think so much of filmmaking is about transporting you to a different world mm-hmm. and sort of putting yourself into characters' positions and this empathy. And I think meta ness takes you back it makes you understand it you are always aware that you're watching a movie and mm-hmm. there's a level of distance to it um and so i don't find it to be uh truthful and and honest i find uh i do think it's insincere i i don't i don't think being meta naturally equates to sincerity yeah and i think what you just said makes you think of the difference between being earnest and honest yeah i think that the shows i like the most are ones that lean into earnesty earnestness mm-hmm. they might not be like honest in a literal sense but it connects to your your humanness and i think yes. sometimes the honesty of metaness is more thinky mm-hmm. more conceptual mm. than it is something uh th- that you feel uh austin what do you think well yeah and, and a lot of times that that metaness can also be manipulative and quite pedantic right it's like we know that there is nothing sincere that we can say and we're going to constantly endlessly reference uh the fact that we are so self-aware and it can kind of be self-aggrandizing, right? But but at the same time, there's also a certain meta-ness to like the whole Brechtian idea of creating that distancing effect, right? That that shocks the audience to thought, that makes you that challenges your expectations. And when you can do that in a way that doesn't fall into just pure pedantic, I'm smarter than you and I'm gonna beat you over the head with the f- whatever this secret message is, um, it's kind of like a, a weird Gnosticism. If you can avoid that, then I think there is something powerful about the kind of like meta distancing, Brechtian, whatever mm-hmm. stuff. And then in that sense, I think Brendan's right that it does kind of create a, a connection to, um, if not to the author, to at least something that the author's signaling to. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not I don't think you're wrong and I and I do think sometimes with the meta thing there's times where I watch something and like the good place has been a show like this recently where it'll make certain meta moves that I don't think it's a meta show as such but mm-hmm. occasionally they make very meta moves that it does feel like a wink from the creators yeah that are sort of like whether you're part of a certain community or you're consuming similar content there, there's fun moments and I think I like meta moments more than I like a, a meta show. Yeah, I mean, in, in those cases, it, it's sort of bringing the audience into it. It's sort of cre- it's sort of creating a parallel and sort of connection between the audience and the and and the creator. Uh, and so that is truthful. It's not so truthful when it's just pointing out, oh, this thing is dumb, or you know, yeah. or, or undercutting no, the emotional yeah. sort of uh, moment in the, in, the, in the film. Yeah, that was why yeah, like, like Jared the... didn't like Cabin in the Woods because he thought it was just mm. shitting on like the history of horror films and cinema. Whereas I kind of thought it was clever, yeah. right? So he. He didn't like it because he thought it was really cynical, but I liked it because I thought it was clever. So, right, there's like a there's a fine line to walk there and you could fall in yeah. a ditch. Yeah. Two C words. Someone say a third one. Um, I'm <laughs> going to say a third one, which is cats. Have either of, of you all seen cats? I have not seen cats. Austin, have you seen I cats? Have I haven't either. So this is going to be all you, bro. Okay. Hey, no, 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 no. It's fine. There, there's some cat stuff. We're, we're, we're not going to get yeah. deeply into it because I am someone who last week was just trying to make yeah. sense of it. I, I, I was, know, I, I know the, so I know hard. the live musical as a, as a musical theater brat. So I've seen that and I've listened to the soundtrack a billion times, but I did not see the Hooper film. I'll leave it at this right now. Max asks a really interesting and detailed question about cats. We might have to get to it. 
um, another time whenever we all make sense of what cats really means because <laughs> uh, that was that was a lot. I would suggest that neither of you watch cats. Um, yeah. Watch watch a serious man again, but maybe don't watch cats. I'm gonna ask both of you. This is unfair because I didn't tell you this was coming, um, but you have to answer quickly because this is this is live radio, baby, and we got to be quick. <laughs> um, favorite Coen Brothers movie. Oof, uh, Miller's Crossing and um, Raising Arizona. Cool, probably. I said one, you took two. I respect I, the fact they, that you do what you want. Yeah, I'm going to do I, what no, I want. I like it. One is drama, one is a uh, comedy. Okay, Austin, go. favorite Coen Brothers movie, and you can get two if you want. Because <laughs> I did it. Yeah. <laughs> Big Lebowski, and then mm. I love Lewin Davis, too. But Big Lebowski, 100%. Wow, that's great. It was fun to hear that. Um, what about yours? yours? Yeah. I'm going to go Lebowski for my my fun one and I'm going to go Serious Man for my dark one. Oh, wow. I could go I haven't I haven't mm. gone back to the 90s films in a while so I need to I might change my mind but having just watched it a couple times in the past week I'm a serious man kind of mm. guy. You know a film um, that's criminally underrated and I think Hail Caesar was really good. It is it, good. It was it's better really than we gave it credit yeah. for at the time. I was yeah. thinking Barton Fink is highly underrated. And those together, those are, those are, those are a good. Sort of, that's a good double feature. Okay, so yeah. that's our big advice: watch yeah. Serious Man, and then do a Barton Fink Hail Caesar double feature. I think that's a good way to go. You won't go wrong, Michael. Once again, do you want to know something yes. crazy? The first time Why I not? saw Barton Fink in Miller's Crossing was with you and our friend John when we were in Scotland, because he hmm. introduced me to both. Do you remember that, Austin? Yeah. We've talked about this. You, you do not <laughs> let them know that we know each other on this podcast. We had this discussion. We had this discussion. I know you only as a disembodied voice that knows a lot of facts. Okay, listener, don't worry. He's he's. I don't know what drugs they do in Australia, but he's doing them. Well, I had this a dream a that, I watched, out there. that I watched Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink, but that was the first time that I ever saw it was actually – so you have like a uh, – it, whether it's imaginary or not, you have some sort of <laughs> impact on my experience of the Coen Brothers wow. filmography. Wow. Well, that's really, that's good to know. It's going to, and, and yeah, I was kidding. I'm proud to have known and continue to know often. Um, <laughs> but on that note, I think we're done. All we can wish is that our listeners and viewers never have a Cy Abelman in their own life. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> but Tommy, thank you so much. Thank you. Austin, thank you so much. Thank you all. And then... Listeners and viewers, thank you so much. We love having you around. Please subscribe, leave some comments, leave some good reviews. We got some good content coming out soon, including a video that is on the Coen Brothers. Sorry oh. to wet some whistles, but that's coming soon, so keep an eye out for that. And in the meantime, this has been Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. We will see you all next time. Have a good one. <laughs>